Hello and welcome back to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode four of the second age of the Crusaders and the subject is the sack of Constantinople in 1204. For me this was one of the worst episodes in the Crusades for it involved the destruction of what was probably the most beautiful city on the planet at that time. I know there were other great cities like Baghdad which may have had a million inhabitants at the time of the Crusades and the Arab city of Cordoba in Spain was huge and very beautiful at this time. And in China, of course, there were several very large cities like Kaifeng and Hangzhou. But I think Constantinople was the most special city in the whole of the world because it had survived from late Roman times as the only city from the ancient world. What would it have looked like to the Crusaders? Well, we know that the first Crusaders left accounts saying that they were bowled over by what an extraordinary city it was with its amazing architecture. So what did the city contain? Well, the great thing is that a fair amount of it is still visible today. The greatest building was the Church of the Holy Wisdom, or in Greek, the Hagia Sophia, which is still perfectly preserved today and dominates the skyline of modern Istanbul. It was built by the Emperor Justinian in the 6th century, and for me, it's my favourite building in the whole of the world. It's much older than, say, the Taj Mahal in India, and Although it was built later than the Colosseum in Rome, which I think is my second most favourite building in the world, unlike the Colosseum, it is perfectly preserved. The dome was the largest in the world for about a thousand years until St Peter's in Rome was built in the 16th century. Later, the Turks put four minarets around the Great Dome and they copied its design in the mosques they built in Constantinople, like the famous Blue Mosque, which is also a very beautiful building. Constantinople also had a massive hippodrome with capacity for 100,000 spectators, which is absolutely huge if you think about it, and it's bigger than most modern sports stadia. And there were lots of great colonnaded streets and forums that crisscrossed the city with statues from antiquity. There were, of course, also the great walls of the city, which must count as the best defensive system in the entire world. And there are many, many more amazing Byzantine remains that you can still see in modern Istanbul. So if you can possibly visit it, especially after this COVID epidemic is over, I really strongly recommend it. Just a quick word on how Constantinople had survived for so long. Both the Persians and Arabs had laid siege to the city hundreds of years before the Fourth Crusade, and the greatest siege of all had been that by the Arabs in 717 to 18. I think that that siege was one of the most important turning points in history, because if the Arabs had conquered Constantinople, they would probably have been able to conquer much of Europe. But the Byzantines defeated them in an extraordinarily epic encounter in which the Byzantines used their famous Greek fire to destroy the Arab fleet. Greek fire, if you haven't heard of it, was a Byzantine invention in the 7th century, which was essentially a flamethrower. It involved shooting a petrol-based substance some distance, and the Byzantines armed their ships with it, and it was used to devastating effect against the Arabs, and in later centuries against the Vikings when they attack Constantinople. But to return to the Fourth Crusade, as you'll hear, unfortunately in 1204, Greek fire couldn't save Constantinople from the Crusaders. So I'm going to read extracts from my adaptive version of Sir Stephen Runciman's brilliant History of the Crusades. Hope you enjoy it. 
In 1203, the Fourth Crusade found a new direction. Instead of attacking Egypt, which had been its original plan, a plot was hatched to sail to Constantinople to put on the throne the Byzantine pretender Alexius Angelus. He had been deposed by his uncle, who was also called Alexius and who was now the reigning Byzantine emperor Alexius III. The motives were twofold. First, the German king Philip of Swabia was married to a Byzantine princess who was the sister of the pretender and he was very much under the sway of his beautiful wife who wanted to help her brother. Second, the pretender Alexius promised to pay the Venetians the money that the Crusaders owed them. And in the background, the Venetians were playing a double game. Under the leadership of their doge, the famous Enrico Dandolo, who was unbelievably 96 years old at this time, they wanted to use the Crusaders to seize as much of the Byzantine Empire for themselves as possible. Pope Innocent wasn't happy about the plan. A scheme hatched between the Venetians and the friends of his enemy Philip of Swabia was unlikely to do credit to the church. He had moreover met the young Byzantine pretender to the throne Alexius and summed him up as a worthless youth. But it was too late for him to make an effective protest and if the diversion was really going to secure active Byzantine aid against the infidel and at the same time achieve the union of the two churches, it would be justified. He contented himself by issuing an order that no more Christians were to be attacked unless they were actively hindering the holy war. It might have been wiser in the long run for him to have expressed, however vainly, open and uncompromising disapproval. To the Byzantines, always suspicious of papal intentions and ignorant of the intricacies of Western politics, the half-heartedness of his condemnation of the Fourth Crusade seemed proof that he was the power behind the whole intrigue. On the 25th of April... Alexius arrived at Zara from Germany and a few days later the expedition sailed on, pausing for a time at Girazzo where Alexius was accepted as emperor and then at Corfu. There Alexius solemnly signed a treaty with his allies. The voyage was continued on the 25th of May. The fleet rounded the Peloponnese and turned northward to the island of Andros, refilling its water tanks from the abundant springs there. From Andros, it made for the Dardanelles, which it found undefended. The Thracian harvest was ripening, so the crusaders put in at Abydos to gather what they could. On the 24th of June, they arrived before the city of Constantinople. The reigning Byzantine emperor Alexius III had made no preparations whatsoever against their arrival, The Byzantine army had never recovered from the disasters of the Emperor Manuel's last years. It was almost entirely made up of mercenaries. The Frankish regiments were obviously unreliable at such a moment. The Slav and Pecheneg regiments could be trusted only insofar as there was money to pay them. The Varangian Guard, now mainly English and Danish in composition, had traditions of loyalty to the Emperor's person. But Alexius III was not a man who inspired great personal loyalty. 
He was a usurper who had won his throne not through any merit as a soldier or a statesman, but by a petty palace plot, and he had shown himself little fitted to govern. He was unsure not only of his army, but of the general temper of his subjects. It seemed safer to do nothing. Constantinople had weathered many storms before in the nine centuries of its history. Doubtless it could weather another, or so he thought. After attacking without success Chalcedon and Chrysopolis on the Asiatic shore of the Bosphorus, the Crusaders landed at Galata across the Golden Horn from Constantinople. They occupied the town and were able to break the iron chain across the entrance to the Golden Horn and to bring their ships into the harbour. The young Alexius had led them to believe that all Byzantium would rise up to welcome them. They were surprised, therefore, to find the city gates were closed against them, and soldiers were manning the walls. Their first attempts at assault made from their ships against the walls along the Golden Horn were held back, but after a fierce struggle on the 17th of July, the Doge, Dandolo, and the Venetians effected a breach. Alexius III, who was as surprised as the Crusaders to find his city defended, was already meditating on his flight. He had read in the Bible how David had fled before Absalom and so had lived to recover his throne. Inspired by this parable and taking with him his favourite daughter and a bag of precious stones, he now slipped through the land walls and took refuge at Mosinopolis in Thrace. The Byzantine government officials, left without an emperor, made a quick but subtle decision. They brought the blind ex-emperor Isaac, who was the father of the pretender Alexius, out from his prison and set him on the throne, announcing to Dandolo and the Crusaders that as the pretender's father had been restored, there was no need to continue fighting. The young Alexius had chosen hitherto to ignore his father's existence, but he could not well repudiate him now. He persuaded his allies to call off the attack. Instead, they sent an embassy into the city to say that they would recognise Isaac if his son was raised to be co-emperor, and if they both honoured the treaty that the latter had made. Isaac promised to carry out their demands. On the 1st of August, at a solemn service in the Church of Hagia Sophia, in the presence of the leading crusader barons, Alexius was crowned as Alexius IV and co-emperor with his father. Alexius IV soon found that an emperor cannot be as irresponsible as a pretender. His attempts to force the clergy of the city to admit the supremacy of Rome and to introduce Latin was met with sullen resistance. Nor was it easy for him to raise all the money that he had promised. He rashly began his reign by making lavish gifts to the crusader leaders, whose greed was thereby stimulated. But when he had to hand over to the Venetians, the money due to them from the Crusaders, the treasury was found to be insufficiently well supplied. Alexius therefore announced new taxes and further enraged the Byzantine church by confiscating large quantities of ecclesiastical plate to be melted down for the Venetians. Throughout the autumn and winter of 1203, the atmosphere in Constantinople grew steadily more tense. The sight of the haughty 
anti-Frankish knight striding through their streets exasperated the citizens of Constantinople. Trade was at a standstill. Parties of drunken Western soldiers constantly pillaged the villages in the suburbs so that life was no longer safe outside the walls. A disastrous fire swept through a whole quarter of the city when some Frenchmen, in an excess of piety, burnt down the mosque built for the use of visiting Muslim merchants. The crusaders on their side were as dissatisfied as the Byzantines. They came to realise that the Byzantine government was quite unable to carry out the promises made by Alexius IV. Neither the men nor the money that he had offered were forthcoming. Alexius himself soon gave up the hopeless task of trying to content the crusaders. He invited them to an occasional feast at the palace and with their help he made a brief military excursion against his uncle Alexius III, who was still in Thrace, returning home to celebrate a triumph as soon as he had won a little skirmish. The rest of his days and nights were spent in private pleasures. His father Isaac, who was too blind to take part in the government, shut himself up with his favourite astrologers, whose prophecies gave him no reassurance for the future. An open breach was inevitable, and the doge Dandolo did his best by making unreasonable demands to hasten it on. Only two men in Constantinople seemed fit to take control, both of them sons-in-law of the ex-emperor Alexius III. Anna's husband, Theodore Lascaris, was a distinguished soldier who had organised the first defence against the Crusaders, but after his father-in-law's flight, he had gone into retirement. Eudocia's husband, Alexius Mercephilus, had on the contrary sought the favour of Alexius IV and had been given the title of Protovestiarius. He had now made himself the leader of the Byzantine nationalists. Probably in order to frighten Alexius IV from the throne, he organised a riot in January 1204, but its only concrete result was the destruction of the great statue of Athena, the work of the legendary ancient sculptor Phidias, which stood in the forum facing the west. It was hacked to pieces by a drunken mob because the goddess seemed to be beckoning to the crusaders. In February, a deputation from the crusaders came to the palace of Black which was the principal palace that the Byzantines used, to demand from Alexius IV the immediate fulfilment of his promises. But he could only confess his powerlessness, and the Crusader delegates were nearly torn to pieces by the angry crowd as they passed out from the imperial audience chamber. The populace then rushed to Hagia Sophia, and there they declared Alexius deposed, and elected in his place an obscure Byzantine nobleman called Nicholas Cannabis, who who happened to be present and who tried to repudiate the honour. Xerphilus then invaded the palace. No one attempted to defend Alexius IV, who was thrown into a dungeon and strangled there, universally and deservedly unlamented. His father Isaac was also murdered a few days later. Xerphilus then had himself proclaimed Emperor Alexius V. This palace revolution was a direct challenge to the Crusaders. The Venetians had long been urging them that the only effective course was to take Constantinople by storm and to install there a Western emperor. Their advice now seemed to be justified, but it would not be easy to choose an emperor. Discussions were carried out throughout the month of March at the camp at Galata. There were some who pressed for the election of Philip of Swabia to unite the two empires, but Philip 
Philip was far away in Germany. He had also been excommunicated and the Venetians disliked the idea of one powerful German and Byzantine empire. Boniface of Montferrat was the obvious candidate, but there again, in spite of the Doge Dandolo's protestations of affection for him, the Venetians disapproved of him. Boniface was too ambitious for their tastes. He had, moreover, connections with the Venetians' rivals, the Genoese. It was decided at last that a panel of six Franks and six Venetians should elect the emperor as soon as the city was taken. If, as seemed best, the emperor was to be a Frank, then a Venetian should be elected as patriarch. The emperor should have for himself the great imperial palace and the residential palace at Blackenai, and a quarter of the city and the empire. The remaining three quarters should go half to the Venetians and half to the crusading knights to be divided into fiefs for them. With the exception of the doge, all the fiefholders should do homage to the emperor. All things would thus be ordered to the honour of God of the Pope and of the empire. The pretence that the expedition was ever to go on to fight the infidel in the Holy Land was quite simply abandoned. On the Byzantine side, Alexius V was a vigorous but not a popular ruler. He dismissed any minister whom he thought disloyal to his person, including the historian Nicetus Coniates, who took vengeance on him in his history. There were some attempts to repair the walls of Constantinople and organise the population for the defence of the city, but the city guards had been demoralised by the constant revolutions, and there had never been an opportunity to bring up troops from the provinces. And there were also traitors in Venetian pay within the city. The first attack by the Crusaders on the 6th of April was driven back with heavy losses. Six days later, the Crusaders attacked again. There was a desperate fight on the Golden Horn, where Greek ships vainly tried to keep the Venetian fleet from landing troops below the walls. The main assault was launched against the Blackenai quarter, where the land walls came down to the Golden Horn. A breach was made in the outer wall there, and the defenders were holding the inner wall when, either by accident or by treachery, a fire broke out in the city behind them and trapped them. Their defence collapsed and the Franks and the Venetians poured into the city. Alexius V fled with his wife along the walls to the Golden Gate and out into Thrace. When it was known that he'd fled, the remaining nobles met in Hagia Sophia to offer the crown to Theodore Lascaris, but it was too late to save the city. Theodore refused the empty honour. He came out with a patriarch to the golden milestone in the square between the church and the great palace and spoke passionately to the Varangian guard, telling them that they would gain nothing by surrendering now to their new masters. But the Varangians were broken in spirit and they would fight no more. So Theodore and his wife and the patriarch, with many of the nobility, slipped down to the palace harbour and took ship for Asia. There was a little fighting in the streets as the Crusaders forced their way through the city. By next morning, the Doge and the leading Crusaders were established in the Great Palace and their soldiers were told that they might spend the next three days in pillaging the city. The sack of Constantinople is unparalleled in history. For nine centuries, the great city had been the capital of Christian civilization. It was filled with works of art that had survived 
from ancient Greece and with the masterpieces of its own exquisite craftsmen. The Venetians, indeed, knew the value of these things. Wherever they could, they seized treasures and carried them off to adorn the squares and churches and palaces of their own town. But the Frenchmen and Flemings were filled with a lust for destruction. They rushed in a howling mob down the streets and through the houses, snatching up everything that glittered and destroying whatever they could not carry, pausing only to murder or to rape or to break open the wine cellars for their refreshment. Neither monasteries nor churches nor libraries were spared. In Hagia Sophia itself, drunken soldiers could be seen tearing down the silken hangings and pulling the great silver altar to pieces, while sacred books and icons were trampled underfoot. While they drank merrily from the altar vessels, a prostitute set herself on the patriarch's throne and began to sing a French song. Nuns were raped in their convents, palaces and hovels alike were wrecked, wounded women and children lay dying in the streets. For three days the ghastly scenes of pillage and bloodshed continued until the huge and beautiful city was a shambles. Even the Saracens would have been more merciful, cried the Byzantine historian Nicetus, and with truth. At last the crusader leaders realised that so much destruction was to nobody's advantage. When the soldiers were exhausted, order was restored. Anyone who had stolen a precious object was forced to give it up to the crusader nobles, and unfortunate Byzantine citizens were tortured to make them reveal the goods that they had contrived to hide. Even after so much had been destroyed, the amount of booty was staggering. No one, wrote the crusader Villehadouin, could possibly count the gold and silver, the plate and the jewels, the silks and garments of fur and ermine, and he added on his own learned authority that never since the world was created had so much been taken in a city. It was all divided according to the treaty. Three-eighths went to the Crusaders, three-eighths to the Venetians, and a quarter was reserved for the future emperor. So ended the Fourth Crusade, although it was not the final end of Byzantium. The Wheel of Fortune had turned a full circle from the First Crusade, which had saved Byzantium, to the shocking sack of Constantinople just over 100 years later. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And any feedback is really appreciated. If you feel like leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, you'd be doing me a massive favor. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear what happened to the Crusaders in Constantinople. <music>